It's a privilege to play our part in all that God is doing in and through you. To find out what your next step could be or to partner with us to reach more and more people by giving financially, head to our website elevatechurch.me and download our Elevate Church AU app, available wherever you download your apps. Well, good morning. Great to see you all here this morning. And also a special shout out to those of you listening via our podcast, wherever you are in the world. A special shout out to the country of my grandparents, Susas, uh, who migrated from the UK uh, last month. Our UK audience went from number eight to number seven, so moving up. So welcome those of you in the UK listening for the first time. Great to have you with us. And this is week five of a series that we've called You're Not the Boss of Me. And uh, the big idea of this series, it's a real practical series. It's a how-to series. The big idea is how to say no to the emotions that compete for control. And we're particularly talking about toxic emotions. We've talked about guilt. We've talked about envy. Last week, we talked about anger. These, these sort of toxic emotions, when toxic emotions are in control, things very quickly get out of control. And uh, they're never going to lead us to God's best in our lives. Today, I want to talk about something that Jesus actually spent quite a bit of time talking about and modeling and, and teaching. And here's a little pro tip. If you ever notice that there's a theme that God and that Jesus bangs on about, it's actually because He recognizes that it's important to us. And He wants us to recognize that it's important to Him that he cares, that he's noticed, that it's got his attention. And actually this week, the thing that I want to teach about that Jesus spent a lot of time teaching and modeling is fear. Some of you, that might be a bit of your story. That might be a circumstance in your life. That might be a season in your life. That might be something that's gripped you, that's taken control of you, that fear is currently the boss of you. And I want to talk about that today. Now, you may not actually have uh, realized, or some of you, you're pretty smart, you may have realized that fear can actually be a positive thing. YouTube fail videos, Instagram fail videos, and what's uh, commonly referred to as YouTube for old people, funniest home videos TV show, uh, is actually full of people that could have done with a little more fear in their life. Fear is the sort of thing that's going to keep your four-year-old son, hopefully, from jumping off the first floor balcony, pretending that he's Superman. A little bit of fear can be a good thing, but fear can actually, as you know, and the thing that we mostly associate the word fear with is negative stuff, things that we're afraid of. And, and of course, that's true. Important to understand that fear is actually the byproduct of anticipation, and that anticipation, because I say anticipation, maybe we don't recoil like we might recoil when we hear the word fear, because anticipation is a great blessing. Anticipation is the thing that gets you excited about the upcoming holiday, or starting the new job, or, or buying your first house. It's anticipation. I remember growing up, and new car day in our family came around every you know five, six, seven, eight years. It was always a Holden. It was a Tirana. Then it was a Gemini. Then it was an Astra. But we knew when it was new car day, there was anticipation. And me and my brother would be just peering out of the curtains anytime after 4 p.m. Is Dad in the driveway yet? Is Dad in the And then when he, we would... Anticipation is a very, 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 very good thing. And I don't really know anyone that would want to trade in the gift of being able to anticipate things. 
And yet anticipation is also gives way to fear. And, and really the hinge point as to whether we treat anticipation in a way that leads us to excitement or whether we treat anticipation in a way that leads us to fear, the hinge point is how we process the question, what if? What if I buy the new house and I can't keep up the mortgage payments if interest rates go up? What if I start the new job and I don't really like it or I'm not very good at it and maybe I'm gonna get fired? What if I, what if I say uh, to that girl, ask her to marry me and she says no? Or she's not the one, which by the way, it'd be cruel to think that there's only one in eight billion. It's like needle in the haystack, but that's a message for another time. Treating the, the question, what if? And, 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 and our answer is very much the predictor of whether it's gonna lead us to hope and dreaming and imagination or whether it's gonna drag us into this kind of shrink-wrapped life that's shrouded in fear. And I mentioned Jesus had a lot to say about fear. And so let's say this is you. You're, you're someone, there's a circumstance that you're feeling a little bit afraid of or something in your life's causing fear to kind of loom large on your horizon. And you do the smart thing. You say, I know what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna open my Bible and I'm gonna go to the stuff that Jesus said about fear because that's gonna help. So you go there and here's the deal. Whenever you go to the stuff that Jesus said about fear, the bottom line is always the same. He says to the audience that he's speaking to and he says to you, Three words, don't be afraid. And chances are you read that and you think to yourself, well, that's incredibly naive, Jesus. I am afraid because there's something that I'm afraid of. And your magical advice is don't be afraid. Boy, I never would have thought about that on my own. Thanks so much, Jesus. Glad God sent you to this earth just to drop that nugget in front of me. Don't be afraid. It's a question, you don't wanna be afraid. So you're not saying, oh, Jesus, it's not that I don't believe you. I wanna know, is this in fact even possible? Like how? And one of the problems is when we read the stories that, 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 that Jesus inserts this instruction into, we kind of read them in isolation. This happened, so people got scared. Jesus says, here's the magic antidote, don't be afraid. But what we kind of need to do is we need to understand that actually Jesus, a big part of his three and a half years on this earth, maybe one of the biggest goals of his three and a half years on this earth, publicly leading people, was to actually take them on a journey that would result in them being able to live lives without fear. And I wanna take us on a little bit of a flyover this morning. But here's the thing, understand, this took Jesus with his 12 merry men, three and a half years until they finally got it right. So if you're someone that's been wrestling with fear, struggling with fear, understand, you're in very good company. You're not the first. Jesus' closest 12 were good at it. And yet they were able to arrive at a place where fear was no longer the boss of them. And so let's get busy flying over. If you've got our Elevate Church AU app, you can tap on the Bible tile. It's gonna take you to one of Jesus' closest followers who was an eyewitness to much of what Jesus did in his public life. And uh, he recorded, I'll start with some events that he recorded that he was actually himself a, a part of. Now, to set the scene, what has just happened is Jesus has just finishing, finished handpicking 
his closest 12 followers. So, you know, if you're in, you're thinking it's a good day. But Jesus understood that often some lessons, some life lessons are better shown than told. So he decides the first thing, the first order of business, he's gonna take him on a field trip. And this is how that one played out. Then Jesus got in a boat, his disciples with him. Now, some of his disciples were experienced fishermen, generations into that industry. And the next thing they knew, they were in a severe storm, waves crashing into the boat. Now, storms were not uncommon in that part of the world. Storms were not uncommon in that particular stretch of sea. And and many of those of Jesus' 12 or several of those 12 followers, they were, as I said, experienced fishermen. So a storm, well, it's kind of like they kind of come in, do a bit of this, and then they go. But for them to record that this was a severe storm is intentional, that we get this idea that this is not just a garden gnome variety storm that they're just going to hang out, batten down the hatches, and it'll pass. But there's actually something pretty severe going on here. And while the waves were crashing into the boat, Jesus was, well, he was sound asleep. And I'm not sure he was actually sound asleep because according to what Matthew wrote, this severe storm, it kind of suggests it wouldn't have been possible to sleep. I, I, I wonder if Jesus wasn't just kind of pretending to be asleep and just sort of sleeping with one eye open just to see what these knuckleheads were going to do. So they roused him, pleading, Master, save us. We're going down. Okay, well, we get a picture of just how severe this storm is. It's actually now about to sink the boat. According to some experienced fishermen in familiar waters, it's about to sink the boat. And when it sinks the boat, you don't just kind of phone 911 and, and, and the Coast Guard pick you. you. That's it. That's it. That's game over. And Jesus reprimanded them. Why are you such cowards, such faint hearts? In, in another translation, he asked the question, why are you so afraid? Which when you think about it, it's a ridiculous question. Because they said to him, I'll tell you why we're so afraid. We're about to flip and die. Why aren't you so afraid? Now, I've taught this story many times. Some of you, if you've been orbiting the church's sphere for any length of time, you've probably heard this story taught. And the big takeaway is often that we serve a God, we serve, we follow Jesus who has control over the wind and the waves. So when you have a storm in your life, know that Jesus is stronger than the storm. And and that's true. And, And by the way, so true that one of the things that we need to understand and we need to remember is there's a lesson in this that don't stop short by only telling God about the storms, understand that we're empowered to tell the storms about the power of God. So Jesus didn't panic. We panic. And I love that we serve a God that doesn't panic. Because when you're panicking, the last thing you want is people around you panicking. And certainly the last thing you want is the one that you're hoping maybe has the power to save you panicking. What if Jesus is panicking? Oh my gosh! 
See, we panic because we focus on the wrong thing, but we actually serve a God. God is incapable of being surprised. So Jesus stood up and told the wind to be silent and the sea to quiet down, silence, and the sea became smooth as glass. And the men rubbed their eyes, astonished. What just happened? Wind and sea come to heal at his command? Wow. Okay. And, and for a moment, albeit we'll learn a fleeting moment, their confidence in Jesus overtook their fear of the circumstances because they chose to shift their focus off the storm and onto the Savior. But they didn't know everything that we know. But for a fleeting moment, fear was no longer the boss of them. A few days later, because this was their first outing, their first field trip, Jesus gathered them together to debrief. It didn't go so well. He wanted to make sure they'd learned something from the field trip that didn't go so well. He said to them, don't be bluffed into silence by the threats of bullies. There's nothing they can do to your soul, your core being. Save your fear for God who holds your entire life, body and soul in his hands. This Opening line, don't be bluffed into silence by the threats of bullies. You can translate into any circumstances that the worst thing they can do is, is just damage you physically. But they can't actually do anything to damage your soul. Save your fear for God who holds your entire life in his hands. And so he's telling them, guys, remember the field trip? You were afraid of the storm. You shouldn't be afraid of the storm, what you should be fearful of. And what you should be focused on is the one who holds your whole life in his hands. He goes on to say, what's the price of a pet canary? Some loose change, right? In other words, not much, dime a dozen. And God cares what happens to it even more than you do. He pays even greater attention to you down to the last detail, even numbering the hairs on your head. So don't be intimidated by all this bully talk, you're worth more than a million canaries. Jesus is trying to get it through to us that even in the worst circumstances, the thing that we need to put front and center is that we serve a God who cares for us. He's not distant. He's not ambivalent. He's not uninterested. Because when we're fearful, when we're in circumstances that are causing fear, it can cause us to feel alone. It can cause us to imagine isolation. It can cause us to imagine worst case scenarios. And yet at all times, God cares for us. So then Jesus is teaching and a group form about, well, depends, but 5,000 dudes, maybe the same number of spouses and maybe the same again of kids. So there's kind of this kind of 5, 10, 15,000 people. We don't know. Either way, it's a lot of buddies. He finished teaching. He went on for quite a while. So it's not just me. Uh, Jesus did it. He went over time regularly. I just 
every now and then try to be like Jesus, and preach for more than my allotted 30 minutes, take it up with him. He's preached so long that these crowds, they couldn't, even, they couldn't make it home in time for dinner. So they're hungry. And Jesus says to the, these homies, hey, guys, what do we got? And they go, we got nothing. And we, there's no shops around. And if they were, they wouldn't have enough supplies for this many people. And even if they did, how are we going to kind of make it and manufacture it and get? So look, what are we going to do? And, and Jesus said, well, what, what do we have? And this little kid who's, who's, who had the only responsible parent out of a group of 15,000 people, she packed his lunch, right? The rest of them just sent their kids off into the wild without lunch. That's just irresponsible parenting right there. But one parent packed little Johnny's lunch. But, but here's the problem. Jesus then took little Johnny's lunch off of him. I mean, in that moment, if I was little Johnny, I'd be pretty ticked off. I'm like, it's not my fault if none of these people's mums prepared lunch. My mum prepared my lunch. So too bad if you're gonna starve. I'm good. I got some fish. I got some bread. And Jesus goes, give me that. What are you gonna say? And uh, Jesus prayed over this kind of bread and thing, you know, and then said to the, the 12, said, now look, take it, I'll give you a bit of each and, and go and feed the 15,000 with the Tupperware container. And they're like, uh, Jesus, I think you should feed them. And Jesus says, no, actually, no, no, guys, I'm giving you the opportunity to feed them. Now, again, this story I've preached before. How many of you have read and maybe heard a message preached on this, the feeding of the 5,000? Uh, yeah, good, great, good, well done. Keep coming back for more. There's always more to take away from it. Takeaways like Jesus multiplies what we put in his hands. Take a couple of fish and five loaves and, and multiply it and they wouldn't have multiplied unless we actually offered them up to Jesus if we just held on to them in our little small containers. They wouldn't have, the miracle wouldn't have happened. I preached about that and it's true, absolutely. We, we preach about that or, or think about that or pray about that, 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 <coughs> that Jesus didn't actually go and feed the people, that the disciples went and fed the people. And that instead of saying to God, God, why don't you do something about that? God says to us, well, why don't you do something about that? I've equipped you. I've gifted you. I've blessed you. Stop complaining about what's wrong in the world. And start be part, being part of the solution. Oh, I preached about that. Again, still true. But that's not what was going on here. Jesus finished this little object lesson and says, okay, fellas, time for another field trip. We're going on a boat ride. Actually, no, you're going on a boat ride. That's what he said. As soon as the meal was finished, Jesus insisted that the disciples get in the boat and go ahead to the other side while he dismissed the people. This word insisted translates coerced or even can be translated forced. Jesus forced the disciples to get in the boat, which is fair enough, because they're thinking of themselves, <laughs> no way, mate. I remember the last time you took us on a boat ride. It was pretty scary. And this time, you ain't even coming. Look, Jesus, we're fine. We'll just walk. But he forced them onto the boat. And, shocker, Meanwhile, the boat was far out to sea when the wind came up against them and they were battered by the waves. Deja vu all over again. At about four in the morning. So here we go. We're going from dinner time. 
boom, wave, storm, circumstance, repeating, not finishing, not getting fixed. Again, and now it's four in the morning, still coming at them. Jesus came towards them walking on the water. If you're not a Jesus follower yet, I get it. This, I mean, you might think, yeah, the calming the storm thing, yeah, maybe, maybe not. The feeding the 15,000 with a Tupperware container for lunch, uh, sounding a little far-fetched, but I mean, really, I'm, I'm drawing the line on the walking on the water thing. I mean, as if. But here's the thing, and this is why I take this on, is this was actually not, this isn't me telling you that this is what happened. This is actually Matthew, who was on the boat. This is actually Peter, who told Mark, who wrote it down, that this happened. And this was actually John, little John, that was on the boat. And they, all three of them, wrote accounts that Jesus came to them walking on the water. So I'm good, well, yeah, sounds about right. However, they were scared out of their wits. A ghost, they said, crying in terror. So here's the 12, the hand-picked creme de la creme that Jesus had chosen out of a lot of applicants. And yet again, they're in the exact same set of circumstances that they've already been in. They're on a field trip. They've, been, they've seen the object lesson. They had faith for a moment and they're right back there as if they haven't progressed at all. And I hope you're encouraged by that. If you're somebody that's found yourself afraid of the same thing as if it's somehow on an endless loop. It's not just you. You're in very good company. But it's not the end of the story. It wasn't the end of the story for them. And it doesn't have to be the end of the story for you. Jesus was quick, quick to comfort them with those incredibly helpful words. Don't be afraid. Once again, face palm emoji, Jesus, not helpful. Jesus got him out of this situation, and you think to yourself, all right, seems like they didn't pick up what he was putting down the first time. But this time he's done some like water walking stuff. It's like next level. And then he's fixed it all up. You think like, yeah, they, they, yeah. I mean, how could they not get it now? And yet these same men, 11 by this stage, when Jesus had been put to death, were hiding in a room because they were afraid that they'd be next. Fear, once again, was the boss of them. Until they peered into an empty tomb. Until they met face to face in the flesh, the guy that they had seen put to death. And in that moment, they came out of hiding. 
In that moment, fear was no longer the boss of them. In that moment, they actually emerged from a room where they were hiding for fear of their lives, where they were hiding, afraid that the same men that had captured and killed Jesus would capture and kill them. They actually came out of hiding and actually confronted those same men, actually stood in front of them, actually stood their ground. Something changed, and what changed was the resurrection. They had fleeting moments of transformation, but ultimately, ultimately, at the end of the three and a half years where Jesus had taken them on a field trip and shown them something else and taken them on another field trip and showing them something else, and he's trying to say to them, guys, listen, when I'm here, there's nothing to fear. Focus on me and not on the circumstances. It, it still didn't all add up until the resurrection. And suddenly, for the first time, everything that Jesus had taught, everything that Jesus had said, everything that Jesus had done to demonstrate to them that if they focused on Him and not their circumstances, all of that suddenly made sense. The resurrection changed everything in them. And the reason He selected them was that ultimately they would be a catalyst for changing the world, that they would ultimately be a catalyst for taking the message of the resurrection, for taking the message that for God so loved the world that he sent his only son into the world so that you and I would never have to die, but we could have eternal life. That these were the people he charged with that responsibility. And they went from people who were, where fear was the boss of them to people who would take on anything and anyone to see Jesus' message extended, that fear was no longer the boss of them. And this message of the resurrection started to transform, started to, to extend throughout the known world, where people not just signed up to be followers of Jesus, not just signed up to go to church, not just to signed up to occasionally read their Bible, where people actually no longer lived with fear as the boss of them. In the second century, a couple of hundred years after Jesus had been killed for being too popular, threatening the local authorities, the church was growing. People were saying yes to following Jesus in the hundreds and the thousands. And this, this started to become an even greater threat to the Roman Empire. So one of the tactics of the Roman Empire was to hold games inside various coliseums and arenas around the Roman Empire where they would take wild animals and, and have them in these rings and they would just throw the, the, the Jesus followers into the ring. And it was a blood sport for the onlookers. It was a blood sport for the nobility and it was a blood sport for the peasants to be able to see these Jesus followers just mangled and limbs torn, and torn from them and, and just massacred time after time after time after time. And um, <laughs> in that uh, same time, uh, medical professionals... Um, weren't allowed to examine dead bodies. It was against the law. The law was such that as soon as someone was killed, 
They would have to be buried straight away. Kind of a, you know, respect the body, the spirit. There's no refrigeration, etc. So once they were dead, they would be carted off. And, the, and, the, and that left essentially retarded advance in medical science that we weren't actually able to explore the body. And so some uh, medical practitioners would actually and be thankful for your job when I tell you what they did. They would hang out at these arenas. And once the blood sport had finished and the wild animals were taken back out of the arena, some medical professionals would rush into the arena looking for not yet dead people so that they could quickly examine them before they died and just discover more about the human anatomy because it was on display. So there's these Jesus followers, dead and, and, and nearly dead. And there's these medical practitioners with no skin in the game whatsoever when it comes to Jesus. They were just there to do some kind of lab work in the only opportunity that the culture afforded them. And one of them was a writer, a medical practitioner called Claudius Galenus. And this is what he wrote about the Jesus followers who he would encounter for the only time, moments before they died. For fearlessness of death and the hereafter is something we witness in them every day. And it took Jesus three and a half years of living, walking, working, breathing, sleeping, eating, teaching, journeying, allowing miracles to happen, showing miracles happening, having miracles working through. The, it took three and a half years for these 12 men to move from fear being the boss of them to no longer, not just them, but no longer for fear to be the boss of them. And here's the deal. When you put your faith in somebody who's mastered life and, and conquered death, That is why fear doesn't have to be the boss of us. It's not a zap. It's not a magic wand solution. In, in fact, here's the thing. It's not always that the circumstances that made you afraid in the first place go away. So last week I talked about anger. There's gonna still be things that bother you, but you and I don't have to allow anger to be the boss. There is still gonna be circumstances that cause you to be tempted to be afraid, that may historically have always caused you to be afraid. But in light of the resurrection, in light of you putting your faith in the one who mastered life and conquered death, come on now. This is one of those, what's the worst thing that could possibly happen? This is one of those, when you ask that question, what if? What if? Well, you know what? What's the worst thing that can happen? That's the source. So what we want to do this morning, our teams here, is actually pray for you one-on-one -on -one, if you want to. And it's not a zap prayer, though I do expect God will move in the moment that they're praying for you. If, if fear has been the boss of you in any circumstance or season, and you felt your life shrinking, you felt that cloud following you around, in a moment, music teams just kind of, kind of riff and jam and the rest of it, you can stay seated. But our team, 
one, two, three, four of our uh, hand-picked people. They're going to be available just down the front. And I want you, if that's your thing, if you think, yeah, I'd love, I'd love someone to pray for me around this topic of fear. There's something in my life I want to be set free from. Then just come forward. It only take three, four minutes or so. Just come forward, introduce yourself. They'll introduce themselves. They'll pray for you. It's not going to get weird. And I just trust that God's going to do something in that moment and ultimately, ultimately give us a greater revelation of what the resurrection means for us personally. Thanks for joining us for another inspiring message from Elevate Church in Perth, Australia. For more information about Elevate Church or to contact us, head to our website, elevatechurch.me and take us wherever you go by downloading our Elevate Church AU app, available wherever you download your apps.